Dr. Edward Valandra is our guest this week, and he's one of the editors of Colorizing Restorative Justice. And he's the guy who just gets you thinking about things like repairing harm and like repairing the settler colonialism's first harm. We had so much to talk about that we divided our conversation into two parts. Here's part one with your hosts, Shelley, Steve, and me, Stan. This is our second season podcast of Circle Forum with a focus on student attendance and engagement. And as we begin this week, we want to acknowledge that the lands on which we gather today are the traditional territories of Indigenous peoples. I'm here on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, the Nanaimo First Nation, also known as Nanaimo, British Columbia. Shelley and Steve live and work in the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee and Mississaugas, also known as Cannington and Hastings, Ontario. We're all treaty land people, and we recognize that we have a long way to go toward reconciliation with our First Nations. And our work with restorative practice in schools is just one way. And we're thrilled to have a guest with us today, Dr. Edward Valandra. Well, it, uh, it's good to be with uh, Stan, Steve, and Shelley. Um, I talked to Stan earlier, and my first time I got to meet Steve and Shelley. So, um, and I'm very happy that we're having this conversation. Um, it, it's always a conversation that has long been needed. And the conversation we're talking about, of course, is uh, would be settler and native relationships in, in the large scheme of things. And so the land acknowledgement, I think, is, is good in that it doesn't erase Indigenous people because that's kind of been the whole settler colonial um, thinking and mindset was the erasure of Indigenous peoples. So to have the land acknowledgement is a, is a step in the right direction. And I'm sure as time goes on, um, land acknowledgement will eventually lead to land return. That is, that is I think, the, the driving force of indigenous uh, coexistence. And so, so that's often uh, good. In, in terms of uh, the introduction, myself, I am from the Ocheti Shakoi Oyate are the people of the seven fires. Um, here in the States, we're called uh, Sioux Indians. Uh, other people know us as Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota people. Um, <clears throat> and I am in the, my traditional territory, albeit settler occupied. And, um, you know, that's a daily reality that we that I have to deal with and other people of my nation too. It's good that um, we have these kind of dialogues because it they can be very difficult and they can be very uncomfortable and very unsettling. You know, the, the term of unsettling the settlers comes to mind, but they are very needed. It's interesting you mentioned that discomfort and unsettling kind of feeling because that came up in a conversation we've had we had with um, a teacher earlier in September, and uh, one of the things that that came out of that was 
to learn how to live with that discomfort. What's been your experience in terms of, I mean, you're working with and have been the editor of uh, Colorizing Restorative Justice. What's been the response of whites and non-whites to, um, or indigenous and whites to the, the book, Colorizing Restorative Justice? I, I think for the, um, <clears throat> for the communities of color, and indigenous people, I, I would say the response has been affirmative in that finally, you know, we're voicing our realities, which is a subtitle of that, and talking about the interactions between uh, whites and, and people of color and then perhaps settlers and indigenous peoples. And to write, to write in such a way that is very authentic and honest. And um, so I know within the communities of color and given since the book was published in June of 2020, you know, a lot of activity engagements been around the book, panels, webinars. And so that has been um, an indication of how receptive the book has been. In terms of whites, I don't know, I, I, I know from talking with some other, uh, you know, settlers or, or uh, white settlers, um, one had mentioned when they read my chapter, it felt like a punch to the gut. And um, others have said perhaps, you know, other whites or settlers have said that perhaps I'm advocating that whites or settlers can't do circles. And uh, so there's been a lot of uh, reaction from the white community about that particular article um, because it addresses the first harm and what's, and that's a systemic harm uh, from the beginning. So, uh, so I, you know, and I, and I guess what I really posit is that, you know, when indigenous peoples go into these circles, and if, if it's either predominantly white or racially mixed and predominantly white, those circles are not safe spaces to be in. And there cannot be a presumption of that. And I think the literature that I've read and, and people that I've talked to since indicate that circles can be a very dangerous space, especially if people of color and particularly indigenous people, because erasure is always part of that or dismissal or marginalization can happen within those circles. Uh, and that's something I think that the RJ community hasn't really grappled with. They, they know there's intersections of race and gender and patriarchy and all of this, but to really grasp that. I've heard some people of color who've been in racially mixed circles say, a white circle keeper will refuse to talk about race because it's too disruptive. Well, that doesn't get us anywhere. So I, th I think the, the white response has been somewhat muted and maybe reflective. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that about the punch, punch in the gut. Um, there's this restorative justice practitioner, restorative practice practitioner from Australia, Terry O'Connell, uh, who would repeatedly say when it comes to, and this is kind of the truth side of 
the work that we do in restorative practice and restorative justice. He said, there's no nice way to poke someone in the eye. Um, and uh, it, it, that punch in the gut feels and sounds that way too. Right. And I, and I think some of the, what I've heard within a communities of color in the circle processes that, that, that go on, um, I have, I have been told that, um, yeah, people of color, indigenous people can, can do restorative justice or restorative practices up to a point. And that point being whenever whites feel uncomfortable. And of course, I will always refer to uh, Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. For sure. And then her most recent book about, you know, progressive people and and the niceness that they have that also is this this dismantling of authentic conversations. So so that I think, and it, even in colorizing restorative justice, some of the contributors have mentioned uh, Robin DiAngelo's white fragility uh, work, and that becomes somewhat apropos. Uh, about that. And we have all experienced that to one degree or another within these uh, white spaces. And so, um, so there's a lot of work to be done in that. Um, and I think that's that, that, that poke in the eye, the punch to the gut is, is um, what an indicator of, of, of where people are at with respect to their own inventory, their own self-reflection, and, and to be, you know, I don't know if, we're, to, to talk about this accountability aspect of, of relationships, you know, is, is, is a really, I, I think, a much needed conversation. And um, so I, I think that's, that is, one of the things we have to go in these circles is, particularly among in white spaces, you can you can you can do value clarifications at the beginning, you can set out the process itself, but um, I'm not sure if I talked to you about this then earlier, but you know before you get into the circles, I mean we all bring this cultural baggage, yep, and we just can't leave it outside the circle, it, it's part of who we are. So, you know, when a white circle keeper is maybe challenged by people of color, like, tell us your story, you know? And that becomes, wow, what is this story, you know? And, and so, so to be held accountable in that dialogue, I think is, is, is something that, that's gonna happen more and more, I, I, I think. You know, we want to know, everybody wants to know the story of that person. I, it's funny, I had written down white fragility before we actually started talking about that. As soon as you said punch in the gut, that was the first thing I thought of too, because I remember reading that book at the time and I would read a, a certain number of pages or a chapter and then I'd have to put it down for a while and think about it and then come back and read a bit more, much like I did with Colorizing Restorative Justice and a number of books that have come out recently um you know being a white male we also went through the hashtag me too 
stage where we were getting a lot of press and a lot of articles were written about men and women and how men treat women. And we had to do a lot of thinking about that. And, and I hate to use the word challenge, but our, our thinking and our perspectives have been challenged by a lot of these writings. And I find that when I read Colorizing Restorative Justice, much like White Fragility and a number of other books, um, I would have to take it in small doses because I, I would come into it. I have to check myself because I'd be going through it with my mindset of, that's, that's not right. I, gotta, I, I started making notes of things almost like a rebuttal to what some people were saying. But that's my process of, of internalizing things. So I would take it in small doses, um, think about it, absorb it, and then go back. And some, some of them I've reread two or three times. Some of us can't keep on plowing through. But I think it's necessary that um, books like Colorizing Restorative Justice are necessary because they do challenge our perspectives and our thinking. I'm 61 years old, and I grew up in an era where I just went about my daily business. I was white, middle class. I had privilege, uh, all those things. And all those things are now being pointed out to me as, as maybe not the best way we should have been doing things and probably aren't the best way we're doing things. So now we have to think about those. What is my privilege and how is it different than somebody else's? And so now I get catch myself all the time. I'll be watching TV or whatnot saying, you know, somebody will be being interviewed on the news. And I think, well, they're a very privileged person. They come from a privileged background or whatever. So I, I look at those things and all the, all those sort of um, advantages that I had growing up, um, whether it's the color of my skin or the money that my parents had or the places that we lived, those were all huge advantages that we just took for granted. And now we are thinking about them and we're being forced to think about them. And I think it's a good thing. And so that's why I, I enjoy books like, colorizing and many others because they do challenge the perspectives that I grew up with and never questioned. And now we're questioning them and we're finding out the truths in Canada about what, what truly went on and it's horrendous. And so um, I guess that's almost my, my thinking about the, my, my background on your book, the colorizing book is, is some feedback for you is although it's a tough read and it's, it's that punch in the gut feeling a lot of times it's necessary for us to move forward. We have to hear the truths and we have to accept our responsibilities and move forward. Yeah, we've uh, discussed on previous podcasts as well as just sitting in that discomfort and, and making yourself do that because nobody really wants to sit there. If you have a choice, you don't want to be uncomfortable, but it's something we have to do. And I also had that response a little different than Steve's over that punch in the gut. It was more of really, this is what people do in circles to others, you know, and having that whole piece. And then you have to go to the next level of what have I done? Where have I fit into that piece of things knowingly or unknowingly? Have I asked people to control their emotions? So it's not disruptive. Have I almost scripted for people sometimes what's going to be allowed in the circle or not allowed in the circle. And you do need some, people have to have some safety built in there, but the way we were trained, I can see a lot of faults in that. There was parts that I wasn't comfortable with as a, somebody with a counseling background anyway, but I followed the way I was trained and tried to soften and, and make it as comfortable as I could for, for people. But that's what this book has done for me too, is really reflecting on my practice and uh, how I need to do things differently and, and better. 
I would just echo that that as well in terms of my response to the book. I had a chance to every seminar that I could attend with um, authors talking about their chapters. I was in there, and I was simply listening and absorbing. And uh, like there are a lot of holy smokes moments, kind of like wow, like I had no idea. And so that has really, really informed the way that I'm looking at things now for sure. And uh, I think it takes a couple readings of, you know, some of the chapters like Steve mentioned um, to kind of, um, because what's, what's happening is the punch in the gut is to my, um, my particular bias and perspective it, because I've, that's been my bias and perspective all along. And then to suddenly realize, oh my goodness. Okay. Let me, let me go back now. I've, I've had the punch in the gut. Let me catch a breath and go back and see what's the truth in this for me. You know, like for example, uh, none of us, none of the three of us anyway, knew an awful lot about residential schools growing up. It wasn't part of our, uh, it wasn't part of our learning uh, it wasn't, you know, it actually, I didn't encounter it until I taught history in grade 10, like, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago. That was the first time I encountered the concept of, rest, uh, you know, residential schools. And, and I'm thinking, so where was this in all of my, somebody was making decisions to include certain things in my education and exclude certain things in, in my education and to sort of realize that, oh, okay. And being somebody who loves to study history, recognizing that the history is being told from a particular perspective that has excluded an indigenous uh, perspective as well, was was very, very helpful. And that started to come through in the voices that I heard in the writing, but also, you know, in the specific uh, conversations around those, uh, those seminars. What have been some of your experiences with restorative practice in schools? And what are some thoughts around restorative practice, restorative justice in schools from your perspective? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I, um, I was a uh, senior administrator in, our, in my nation's uh, K-12 school. Um, it, my, my government, my nation uh, chartered a school. And um, of course, the whole idea is we're going to take control of our own educational processes. And that, and I think the school's been going on almost 50 years, coming up on 50 years. Wow. So I, so I came in um, uh, 2016 and, and having been a professor of native studies and doing a lot of work in decolonization, you know, um, <clears throat> course I come into a k-12 system from a university and one of the first things I realized is boy uh, I realized that our school system as native as it is has internalized a lot of the western concepts around education and it was very clear that we were mirroring what what public schools are in in mainstream and and then you begin to then you begin to see the dynamics of of how how we've in, internalized that and so you have hierarchy you have you have a lot of different kind of um, uh, like 
the, the student handbook on discipline. Might as well have been a prison we were running, for crying out loud. Um, and, and yet, you know, the rhetoric was always there that we are Lakota people. We have a way of, 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 of handling and understanding conflict and, and relationships. And yet, um, when you read the student handbook or you read policies and procedures, it's, it, it was like we ourselves were erasing who we are as a people. It was almost as if education itself, when we went to the campus, we left our culture and our language at the door. And perhaps that's, that should not be that surprising because as far as education is concerned with indigenous people, I'm sure that's true in Canada as well. Education has been very punitive and very much about erasure. So I'm not quite sure we've, you know, conceptually the idea is that we control our own education, but yet I think we've, we've, we've internalized those, those various models of Western education and have, you know, repeated them in our own communities so that um, we, we quite haven't had those honest discussions among ourselves um, about, you know, if Western education has not been good for us, then why do we emulate those models and still carry those models out? And that's a very tough nut to crack because like I say, 50 years is a lot of time, a lot of time to institutionalize a lot of practices and it gets, it, you know, it gets downright uh, difficult. So for example, uh, just in how the, the, the system works in our K-12 school, which is probably not that much different from a public school. I always felt that uh, I was in charge of faculty development. So I always thought that, you know, um, that one of the things we could do, and I've advocated is like, it's the teachers that spend a great amount of time with our children. I mean, they're literally at ground zero. They see what's going on in the classroom and have, to, and, and they eventually build relationship with our children. And these could be non-native teachers as well. And so, so, and listening to faculty talk about, you know, their experiences their teaching and then their role in, 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 in our school, which I don't think is much different than any other school. Um, but I, I come to understand that the faculty were probably marginalized in the hierarchy of things. I mean, their input was often not taken seriously enough. And it was the administrators. And when he looked at you know, looked at the policies and personnel. Chain of command was always a huge thing, like chain of command. And that, that bothered me. In one part, coming from a university system, like chain of command is, <clears throat> I mean, you have a structure there, but I think there's a lot, of, a lot more freedom and, and mobility within that system. But in a K-12 school, it was very like, like that's like a boarding school. You know, we just, we just, we just taken the white people out of the system and put our own people in there. And we're running that just like a boarding school, you know, minus the whippings and all this, but mentally how we structured our school system. So it was very difficult for me to really do any kind of decolonizing work. 
So, so give me a dream here for what you wish that could have looked like. I mean, you were the faculty development person, and it certainly echoes in our experience that it does start with the teachers in the classroom. And if they don't feel that they can actually, um, you know, run circles or be part of a, a team outside of a hierarchical structure, but what what would you have dreamed for in your the school uh, on your nation or any other public school in your area? Well, I would say that that the, the faculty in our school, um, being from, you know, many of them are from our from our community, but one of the things is that I would give faculty a greater role in in the policies and procedures, and not just a um, a role of rubber stamping. And one of the things that I've seen as an educator in a K twelve system is, I think I might have mentioned mentioned this to you earlier, Stan, was one of the things I immediately noticed was when school was out, you know, of course, teachers went their separate ways. I mean, they probably took the break to get recertified or whatever they needed to do. And then I heard actual administrators say, now we can get our work done. And what that meant was because there was no distractions, no teachers, no, I mean, they just had this downtime over the summer. And I actually told the superintendent at the time that I worked with, I said, the problem that I hear teachers talk about is they're always coming back to the fall session apprehensive because they're always wondering what we dreamed up over the summer to dump on them. And, and I said, why not just make teachers part of our decision-making process? Why, why wait for the summer to do this? Why don't we start a process in the fall and we can have professional development days where we set aside and we can just start our faculty to become part of the decision-making processes? Well, that was like almost unheard of. Like I've heard administrators say, no, teachers, you know, given their own devices, they're going to want, you know, three days, three day, three days of a week of school, want to work from 10 to 2. And I, and I, I could just see the difference between faculty and administrators. And, and I, 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 it was hard for me to reconcile how we can even begin a restorative justice process and a restorative practice process in that situation. I mean, it would take, it, it would take a lot of education up front, but it would also have to challenge those structures that maintain that system. Well, we're really starting to get into this conversation and I can't wait to share the rest of the conversation in part two later this week. If you want to know more about how restorative practices can be part of your journey of truth and reconciliation, drop me an email to stan at restorative.ca. Our website link is in the podcast description and let's keep the conversation going.